Cairo, Seattle. It's time to get schooled with the professor, John Clayton. And welcome to Schooled with the Professor, a time to go inside a lot of different things in the National Football League. And, of course, one thing that Greg Bishop does for Sports Illustrated is get in-depth stuff. And, of course, what's great about that is that the, he gets to spend time you know, breaking down players, breaking down situations, breaking down uh, what's going on. And, of course, uh, one of the things he just recently did, it looks like you, you spent, Greg Bishop, time you know, following what the Los Angeles Rams did in drafting on the virtual draft, also spent time with the Minnesota Vikings. Can, can you talk about you know, what was the inner workings? Because we certainly got the glimpse of watching what the uh, general managers and that did when they were making their picks, but you had access to be able to see what was going on overall. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, John. So, you know, I, I did this kind of in two parts, and I wanted to, to look at a team going into the draft and how they set up, and I did that with the Rams, and then I wanted to look at a team coming out of the draft and how they did it, and I did that with the Vikings. And, you know, uh, it ended up working out really well because the Vikings had 15 picks. It was a record for an NFL team, you know, since they've gone to seven rounds. Uh, it was a team, like the last time they had that many picks total was like in – you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so it was really cool to watch how they put it all together. But what was most interesting to me was just all the work that went into this. You know, the Rams, uh, I was able to watch on FaceTime as they set up a draft war room inside the guest bedroom at Les Sneed's house. You're talking bunk beds on the wall. You're talking letter jackets in the closet. There was a pool a few feet out back in case he wanted to celebrate, you know, the, the first pick he took in the second round and take a little dip. And it was just really funny to watch as they set up. You know, there was this jar of M&Ms that the NFL was uh, strongly suggested that it should be placed in the shot. There was, you know, uh, 13 different screens by the time he ended it. And this is the same bedroom where his son had slept like three months earlier. And so it was really interesting to see that happen. And it, his wife actually sent me um, a video from during the draft when, like, his Internet went out with, like, 10 picks before. So they had all sorts of redundancy built in. And they had all sorts of extra equipment just to make sure that they could make their picks. And then with the Vikings, you know, this was a this was a guy in Rick Spielman who had actually decided he was going to host a draft out of a hotel. He had rented out the JW Marriott at the Mall of America. They were going to do different groups in different ballrooms to maintain, you know, the guidelines and social distancing. And ultimately, the NFL told them they couldn't do that, so they pivoted to Rick's wife's home office. They added an extra internet line. They had um, all sorts of extra equipment, and they recreated an interactive draft board that he has in the real war room at the Vikings facility and, and put that up on his wall in that room. You know, then it was a matter of could they make 15 picks and reload their roster in you know, basically the span of three days. They were able to do that, too. Yeah, that's pretty good. Talk about uh, you know the, when, when New Orleans made that call, were you able to get part of that call when they traded up? Because that was one of the more unusual things, and it really kind of set it up. Because here they were at the end of the second day of the draft. New Orleans wanted to get out of the draft and basically traded all the remaining picks to Rick, who then came back in the course of the next couple of days, that if he didn't make the pick, he ended up trading out for fourth-round picks the next year, which was smart to do because now he restocks a little bit more for next year's draft and getting some good picks. But I went through and you know looked at the numbers, and basically the Saints sent the equivalent of a fourth-round pick uh, with all those picks that added together for one player that they took in the third round. Yeah, that was a pretty interesting deal. Uh, you know, what, what, I guess 
a little bit of background to start. Like the Vikings knew that this offseason they were going to have to retool their roster. They've had essentially the same defense in place for the better part of six seasons, which, as you know, is difficult in the NFL to keep, you know, a group of that size together, especially when you got to pay so many of them. And so you saw Everson Griffin leave in free agency. You saw Linval Joseph leave. You saw three the three top cornerbacks go, including Xavier Rhodes. And he just knew he was going to need a lot of picks and need a lot of depth. And he knew that he'll need that not just in this season upcoming, but in the next season after. And so, you know, they actually had a few offers for that for that pick. Uh, I think it was right around 100, 105 maybe or something like that. And, you know, they were – Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they so they had a few offers coming in, and essentially what he was doing was weighing which ones were the best. And – you know the the Saints not only blew them out of the water because it it, it was just it wasn't just the haul but it was like they gave up every pick they had left in the draft to get that one. So I think there were three teams that were looking to trade into that spot and had their eye on somebody, and it was the Saints that had the best package. And so I think he chose you know just based on the best compensation there. Yeah, I thought that was really wise. Now, how did he handle it in day three? Because <clears throat> now you only have five minutes on the clock. I mean, he was you know either making the pick or swapping out for f- picks for next year's draft. And he, again, it's getting uh, two fourth rounders. I thought was phenomenal uh, that he was able to do. But how did he have to do the juggling act of both drafting and making trade situations when you only have five minutes and there's only four minutes in the seventh round? Yeah, he actually had 13 picks going into day three, which is just insane. You know, most teams have, you know, 12 picks would be considered a lot for the entire draft. And so, you know, I think Rick's biggest thing was the technology. He's very superstitious and he's like, uh, he's known throughout the building as being like the guy that breaks phones or tablets or computer systems. Like he never, he never uses a piece of technology and doesn't break it. And so, you know, he's toggling between all these rooms they have set up. There's one for him and his top lieutenants where they're going over trades. There's one with ownership. These are all virtual conference rooms. You know, there's one with every assistant coach. And uh, you can hop in and out of those, like the running back room or the receiver room or the offensive lineman room. And what Rick had the most trouble with as he was going through that wasn't even the time limit or knowing which players he wanted, but he had trouble knowing which room to mute and which room to unmute. He told me a fun story in an anecdote. Uh, about Rob Brzezinski as his cap guy, and he was yelling at Rob at one point about something related to the cap situation. And he sees Rob on the other end, like eating what he he thought were some nachos. And he realized, like he's thinking, why is this guy eating while I'm yelling at him? You know, like he should be a little more respectful. And he realized he had uh, he had muted that line. You know, he wasn't yelling at the right video conference. And so he was trying to balance things like that all day. Uh, what he was really happy with is that they were able to reconfigure in the way he wanted. You know, they got nine defensive players in their 15 picks. As you mentioned, they picked up a couple picks for next year. And, um, you know, they were also able to get a few linemen and, and try to retool that. I think they got three offensive linemen, including Ezra Cleveland in the second round. And so, um, you know, he was really happy with that, the football end of it. He said the draft board fell to them. You know, they got Jefferson from LSU in the first and Gladney in the first while being able to trade um, down with San Francisco. And I just think that he was, um, you know, overall very pleased with the football end, but also the technological end. And the, the funniest thing I think about the whole story is that he had really no glitches other than human error until the very end of the draft and then he went to log on to the party that they have for the team and that's when his internet went out. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's incredible. It's kind of interesting that you pick those two teams and those two general managers because in, in a lot of ways, you know, they become victims of their own success because, I mean, you look at the run that six years that you bring about with the defense and all that stuff, and uh, you know, at some point you have to break it up because normally the run's going to be five years before you start breaking it up. And so they, you know, with the with seven key guys that they had to change on defense, that was going to be the challenge. Then you look at the Rams. I mean, even though it's a shorter term, you know, they had to wipe out five key key guys on defense and then Todd Gurley, their top running back, and then traded away Brandon Cooks. So now in setting things up, how did the Les Snead try to handle that in trying to, you know, prepare for the draft, knowing that they were down five key guys and uh on defense and a couple key guys on offense? Yeah, to me that it's an interesting point you make because Les Snead is as you know, it's like he's big into trades. He believes philosophically that if he can add a guy to his team you know, there's less practice time these days. I think they have sort of a philosophical imprint where they say, okay, that you get less time with players. In some instances, it will be better rather than wanting to develop them, which every team in the league says they want to do, to go out and get a guy and use some picks to do that. And you've seen him do it over and over again, uh, most recently with Jalen Ramsey. And so, you know, that has left him this year in a sort of precarious situation. You know, the Rams didn't pick until the second round. They didn't pick particularly early in the second round. As you mentioned, they just dealt Brandon Cooks to Houston. Uh, they, you know, they had Jalen Ramsey that they needed, that they needed to, you know, work out a contract with. And so, you know, I, I think that he went into the draft knowing that he wasn't, um, you know, that he, he wanted to add depth as well. Uh, he didn't think when I talked to him before the draft started that he wanted uh, to move up. He didn't expect to move into the first round. In fact, he was planning to not even really watch from his war room. I think he was happy with having Ramsey, and I think you know he he understood that they needed to reconfigure. And so, to me, the Rams are sort of you know an example of what happens when you subscribe to that philosophy. If you're going to trade picks away, you know you're old, and if you're going to stockpile that many players, if you have Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey and Jared Goff and Todd Gurley, and you know on and on and on, then you're ultimately going to have to let people like Gurley go. And so, uh, it was interesting to see how the, both these teams reconfigured. And I thought you made a really good point in that. You know, they both sort of speak to the way the NFL is and, and you know, how, how you, you can never really be set with anything. No, that's true, and that's one thing I think is fascinating about it. And one thing that Les was able to do because with all the moves that he made before this draft, I mean, he was down to, I think, 11 draft choices over the next two years and, uh, you know, no first-rounders in a five-year stretch. But, you know, I thought that he did a nice job in the sense that, you know, he was able to come out of the draft with nine draft choices, which was good because, I mean, he kept moving around and doing some different things. And so I thought that was pretty important. So, And it looked to me like even though they didn't have a pick until, what, the 49th pick, they did a pretty good job. Yeah, absolutely. And I know they were really happy with the running back they got from Florida State, Cam Akers, and they really liked the safety uh, Burgess that they got as well. So, you know, I think that that's a team that still has a lot of good players left. And to me, that's a division that's really interesting because I think Arizona got a lot better this offseason. I think Seattle, you know, should be one of the more highly ranked power ranking teams going into the year. And obviously, yes, yeah, San Francisco, one of the best teams in the league that added, you know, another couple great players in the first round to their rosters. So, you know, to me, I wouldn't maybe count out the Rams just like other people are yet because I think they were happy with their draft, and I think they still have a lot of good players left on their roster, and they still have Sean McVay. 
Now, curiously, uh, were you part of the watching the mock draft that they had on that Monday before the draft? Because I'm kind of wondering, did Les have to go in the pool that day because you know he wasn't going to be able to participate, knowing he didn't have a first round pick? Yeah, I think he was just kind of watching and laughing and talking to his counterparts. Uh, I do think that they both Les and Rick told me that there was a pretty significant glitch on the first pick of that mock draft, and so. I think that um, everybody was kind of shocked and thinking the draft would be a disaster. But what's funny is there wasn't any um, issues after that for the mock, and there weren't any issues during the draft itself over three days. In fact, I think the league was really happy with how it went over and how it went down. And so uh, Les, Les actually did three mocks. They did one for the league on Monday, then they did an offense one on Tuesday and a defense one on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, you know Les, so you know that he was joking throughout, you know, laughing up a storm. And that was definitely one of the, the more um, looser rooms, I'm sure, that you could find around the league. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. Of course, <clears throat> there were some glitches. I think what ended up happening, because I guess in the Monday mock draft, there was some scripted uh, some scripted trades. Like, for example, I think what was the glitch? I don't know which one it went, but Dallas, I think, was calling up to Cincinnati to see if they can make a trade, and something went wrong there. And so everything kind of went out for about, what, two or three minutes. And then I know that uh, John Snyder had to end up calling uh, Joe Douglas of the Jets to talk about a trade-up. And, of course, Joe Douglas says, John, what are you calling me for? You trade down, not trade up. And then I know that uh, right before the draft, Vic Fangio, his cable went out, and so they had to come over with the cable company and get that fixed up, and it got fixed up pretty quick. And and then, of course, we were able to watch Bill O'Brien of the Houston Texans slam the phone when Detroit pulled out of a trade at the last minute. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I thought, classic, because my favorite part of that one was seeing um, O'Brien's son who was sitting right there, uh, mortified, and his father screaming at someone through the telephone. I think all fathers and sons can relate to that one on some level. And uh, it was interesting. In some ways, I think some of the blemishes might have made the draft like a, more of a unique experience this year. I thought it was cool to see, you know, guys in their living rooms celebrating with their family. You know, everybody wearing the same shirt or all these posters hanging up. I thought it would humanize Goodell in a way that maybe we don't normally see him as like a regular guy who you know, changes into the sweater vest to watch the second round and nearly falls asleep on the couch. And I I just thought it was unique. You know, it lacked the pomp and circumstance maybe that we would have seen in Las Vegas. But um, I think it was it was kind of cool to watch this year. I liked it a lot more than I expected to. Yeah, I thought it was good. Now, I know Rick has a whole bunch of kids. Uh, did he have any issues with the kids during the draft? It's funny um, because Rick has adopted six children, and so, you know, a couple of his children are African-American, or he adopted them even from Africa. And so there was a lot on social media of people asking why he had African-American children in the background. Those are actually his kids, and he has adopted several with his wife, Michelle, over the years. Uh, my favorite anecdote that he told me afterward is that um, he has a daughter, Whitney, uh, who has special needs, and she was in the frame a lot for the picks, and he said... He said she came to him um, afterward and said, Dad, I'm famous, because 28 friends had sent her text messages saying they had seen her on TV. So I thought that was a cool part of the draft as well. Now, another story that you worked on in depth was, uh, I guess, getting together with the on the DeAndre Hopkins trade, which is probably the most significant trade of this offseason, <clears throat> what it meant to the Arizona Cardinals and what it meant to DeAndre Hopkins. What did you pick up with the access to him and the information from the trade? 
Yeah, I think that that story really broke down into two parts. The first is why he left Houston, and the second is the value that they received in return. You know, I think when you look at the value, um, short of David Johnson returning to the all-pro form he exhibited in 2016, it's hard to argue that the Texans didn't get fleeced. You know, they essentially got a running back with a recent injury history, a couple draft picks, and they gave up a top three wide receiver in the NFL. It's not the very top one. And, you know, the other part of that is why DeAndre Hopkins would want to leave. He's got a great young quarterback in Deshaun Watson. They have other weapons. Uh, you know, it's a team that's perennially in the playoffs and in contention for the AFC South. It would seem like a pretty good situation, and he's a guy who's flourished there for a long time, three straight first-team All-Pros. You know, it he, he looked like a, on the outside, like last year, you know, it was a really good beginning of what would, might be possible for them, especially when they went up 24-0 on, on the Super Bowl champions in the playoffs. And so, uh, you know, to dig a little deeper there, DeAndre basically, you know, told me that he did, didn't have a relationship with Bill O'Brien, that he wasn't happy with this meeting that Bill had with him during last season in which he compared him to Aaron Hernandez uh, in terms of the people that he hung around with. Uh, Hopkins has three children by three different women. Uh, Bill referred to them as baby mothers, according to Hopkins, which bothered him. And essentially what what, what I took out of it was that DeAndre knew he was going to leave Houston. He knew as recently as before last season started. He knew um, after the playoff game that he had no intention of going back. And rather than it being strictly about the money, which of course was a component of it, this is a guy that was due to make $12.5 million next year which is obviously undervalued, but part of the contract that he signed. Uh, you know, it was just very clear that he, he didn't want to play for O'Brien anymore and he needed a fresh start. Yeah, and of course it's interesting because what ended up happening is that his contract is a $16.2 million average, and out of all that, along with picking up a $13 million running back, Bill O'Brien goes ahead and trades for Brandon Hop- Brandon Cooks, who makes $16.2 million. and so now they have four wide receivers making an average of $43 million a year and a $13 million running back, and of course, uh, I go back to what we're you were talking about with Minnesota in a short time you can keep a team together. They've been to the playoffs now four times in five years. Five years. They're almost at the same point that the Vikings are, maybe having to break some things up. Yeah, hundred percent. And when you look at those receivers, look at how they all have injury histories. You know, Kenny Stills is hurt last year. Will Will Fuller Fuller's hurt every year. Brandon Cooks is one hit away from never playing football again. You know, he's got a pretty long and, and serious injury uh, concussion history and you know, then you look at David Johnson, who I've profiled before. Great guy. I love him, but he just hasn't been the same player the last couple of years. And so, you know, then you look at their roster. J.J. Watt's getting older. He's been hurt, you know. Um, it just seems to me like they have this window where Deshaun Watson's in his prime, you know, where they really could challenge, you know, Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs for AFC supremacy. But I don't see the window as being long, and I don't think you can make the argument that Losing DeAndre Hopkins, you know, a 27-year-old top three NFL receiver in his prime for what they got in return uh, made them better at all. If anything, it makes them worse and makes the, you know, the potential reboot all the more likely. I mean, imagine if they go 6-10 and 10 this year or something. Why not then just blow it up? They have a lot of older players. You know, they're going to have to pay. They just paid Larry Tunsil. They're going to have to pay Deshaun. Uh, it's a tricky situation, and in a lot of ways, I think it speaks to why people think Bill O'Brien shouldn't shouldn't be the general manager there. Greg Greg Bishop, great stuff from Sports Illustrated. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Schooled with the Professor. Uh, thank you so much for having me, John. 
And that does it for this week's podcast. In between episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at Clayton ESPN. If you enjoy these weekly one-on-one conversations, consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Schooled with a Professor.